ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hilary Harper here. Hello. My eight-year-old saw an electric bus the other day and he said, look, Mum, that's great for the planet, isn't it? And I nodded and smiled, but I have to say that inside I was feeling a low-level dread about whether a few more electric buses were going to be enough. Sometimes parenting forces you to deal with your emotions in ways that you might not if you were alone. So I talked about how people working together could make big changes and about new technologies that might help. And also, next time we go to the shops, maybe less whinging about walking instead of driving. But what are the best ways to deal with our emotions around climate change, whatever our level of actual control over it? Some ideas next on Life Matters, coming to you from Wurundjeri country. just some of this week's frightening climate stories. New Zealand's warming sea temperatures are threatening ancient shellfish populations. Parts of the UK are having heat waves and the huge Canadian wildfires are sending a smoke haze over New York City, which will send shivers down the spine of anyone who smelled that smell during our Black Summer fires three years ago or any natural disaster. All that is affecting our mental health, but it could also be contributing to climate apathy, where we shut off from the issue completely, and that obviously has wider ramifications. I'd love to know how you're feeling when you hear about the climate crisis and how you deal with those emotions, because I guess you're not alone. A lot of people can feel uh, the tumult of emotions around the situation, but I guess we still have to live and continue our lives. How do you do that? What actions do you take? What strategies do you use to try and uh, feel okay? We're going to spend a bit of time today looking at the research around this, and then we'll get a psychologist's perspective on how we can tackle some of the ways that we're feeling. Dr Joelle Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer from the Australian National University. Dr Gerges, great to have you with us. Good morning, Hilary. Now, let's look at the scientific context first. You were a lead author for the UN's latest uh, IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where our most reputable scientists look at the state of climate change globally. What are some of the key findings from that March report that you'd like people to be aware of? Yeah, so, I mean, that report is vast in terms of its scope, but I guess some of the key take-home messages is that under all emission scenarios, we are likely to exceed this 1.5 degrees of global warming in the early 2030s. So that is really within our lifetime, and the implications of that are really, really vast. So I think the average Australian and and really anywhere, uh, anyone around the planet really understands this escalating nature of weather and climate extremes. And so if we're starting to experience these extremes uh, with just 1.2 degrees of global warming, then what will we experience as the planet continues to warm with 1.5, 2, 3 or even 4 degrees? So that's really, I would say, the first take-home message is that the warming that we've already locked in from historical emissions has um, really major impacts, uh, not only here in Australia, but all over the world. Um, But the other thing to keep in mind when we do talk about the climate, because I know it is really easy to want to switch off from these numbers or the numbers just wash over you, is just realising that the that we have technology that exists today that could halve global emissions by 2030. 
So we don't have to wait for a silver bullet. We don't have to wait for the magic wand. It exists right now. And so I think we need to start having a bit more of a nuanced conversation about the state that we're in and really understanding how profi- profound this moment actually is. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the technologies exist. We, we can rebuild it, but it's about the will, isn't it, both on the ground and in our kind of higher up leadership levels. And I think that's our focus today on Life Matters. We want to look at how we can connect those two things and make make the change happen. And part of that is about our emotions. And when you were talking, Joelle, I was thinking, okay, so before my eight-year-old finishes high school, that's when mm. at current trajectories we will see this this temperature kick over the 1.5 degrees of global warming. Where does Australia sit in terms of action on climate change? Look, I think the federal election last year was a really good sign that the that average Australians really want to see climate action. And we do now have a legislated uh, emissions reduction uh, target, which is, is really good, but we still have a really long way to go. And the good news is that Australia is really well placed to be part of this clean energy revolution in terms of Thinking about, say, for instance, solar power, only 10% of Australia's electricity is generated by solar, but we're the sunniest continent on the planet. And so when you stop and you think about these opportunities that exist, really, it's a no-brainer if you stop and think about it. So in terms of what we're doing right now, uh, it is in line with some of the other industrialised countries, but it's not nearly enough given our vulnerability to to weather and climate extremes. In terms of the mental health challenges associated with the climate crisis, that IPCC report uh, made some findings. What did you see in global terms? Yeah, so we know that it's very high confidence that climate change is expected to further increase threats to mental health. And we only have to really think about the recent experience uh, living here in Australia over the last few years where we saw the black summer bushfires of the 2019-2020 fire season where we saw around about a quarter of Australia's temperate forest burn in a single bushfire season. And so we saw three billion animals that were killed or displaced and we also saw a lot of um, communities upended from, from that. And so that happened and then we went into the catastrophic East Coast flooding Uh, in 2022, which saw, again, people displaced from these record-breaking rainfall events. And so I was involved in a study that was uh, um, led by the Climate Council where we actually polled over 2,000 people from around Australia and found that uh, about 80% of Australians had experienced some form of weather disaster since 2019, and more than half of those had experienced uh, some kind of impact on their mental health. Now, it, it, it's not rocket science to figure out why. I mean, when people are displaced and when you lose everything in a fire and a flood, it's a very, very distressing situation to find yourself in. So, you know, these are the early warning uh, signs that we have that our, our planet is warming and things are get, it's starting to escalate and we really have to be on the front foot around this. It was fascinating hearing and reading some of those first-hand accounts of, of how people are feeling having been mm. through those uh, climate-related disasters, that constant low-level background anxiety about, you know, next time it rains, next time it gets warm over mm. summer or in this, you know, in lately, later years, spring as well. What about people who haven't had that first-hand experience of climate-related disasters, Joelle? Is their mental health affected as well? (laughs) Well, half their luck, firstly. I mean, personally, I can barely speak to anyone these days without hearing about some kind of weather 
uh, disaster that they're still cleaning up from, but maybe that's just the people I'm talking to. Um, look, I, I think that it, it really is a matter of time between b- before everybody really around the world feels the impacts of climate change, either directly or indirectly. I think it's one of those things that is there's a lot of inequity in terms of the vulnerability of people that are in harm's way. And I think that a, a nation like Australia, where we do have a lot of people who are very vulnerable to weather and climate extremes, um, we really have uh, a really special role to play in this conversation about climate change adaptation because we're a developed nation and we have the capacity. If we look at our Pacific neighbours where, you know, high tide now is becoming uh, a very anxious and stressful time for people where their houses are being flooded in places like Fiji, uh, it's one of those things that, you know, I don't believe that we have <laughs> any ethical leg to stand on, really, when we think about climate apathy. I mean, to me, that 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 really sort of speaks to a, sort of a degree of privilege that a lot of other people don't simply just do not have. Do you and think so it's think increasing, as, though, Joelle? I mean, do you think people are, are feeling emotionally overwhelmed by it and saying, I just can't engage with this anymore? Look, I, I do understand that. And trust me, as someone who's in front of the numbers day in, day out, it is very overwhelming. But we really can't afford to switch off from this issue because it is one of those things that is um, it, it is it is emer- it is an emergency. And I think that it, it's like, you know, if you're in in a hospital situation in the emergency room, is it time to just be very calm and and and, and you know not not concerned about the situation that's happening? I, I mean, it, it just you know, we need to have an appropriate response to the to the threat that's at hand. Mm. Some of the texts coming in are really interesting on this a range of emotions. One says, "I live with." a very small carbon footprint, but in the face of million-acre wildfires increasing every year, pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, I feel helpless and hopeless. But other people are are telling us their strategies for coping with that sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Retired farmer Sandor von Kontz-Georgica, who texts us quite frequently, says, I live on solar since 1987. I drive a highly fuel-efficient car below 10,000 kilometres a year. I stopped flying in 2004. I reduce my consumption as much as I can. I regenerate land and I discuss the issue wherever possible. Uh, Bruce in the ACT says many Australians talk about climate change but refuse to walk the walk, especially with respect to international air travel. It's environmentally unsustainable. Uh, Rachel in Newcastle says, I'm not a religious person but I find the old prayer of serenity comes in handy when it comes to climate anxiety. So quite a few different approaches detailed there. Joelle, you mentioned that you're right up in the grill of those figures and that science every day. How's your emotional state? What do you do to deal with that? Oh, look, to be very honest, it fluctuates from day to day. There are some times where I'm really overwhelmed and I'm pretty depressed by the the inaction that I'm seeing around me. I mean, we know that climate is um, the climate is changing. We understand the impacts of it. We have literally produced these, um, you know, phone book sized reports, volume upon volume upon volume of the evidence. And so there is a real disconnect with the political response. So here in Australia, we mentioned earlier that we do now have an emission reduction target, but we're still looking at um, over 100 different fossil fuel projects being on the table in terms of um, the continued exploitation uh, of those industries in Australia. So there is this disconnect. And so there are times where I feel, uh, I guess, really despondent. Uh, and and when I, when it is like that for me, I need to step back and, and and try and regain my perspective and remember that there still is so much worth saving, and, and it, particularly in a country like Australia, 
but there are times where um, I also feel really energised by what I see around me in terms of the potential for social and political change is enormous. And we did see it in the federal election results last year where we saw a lot of Australians use their, their political power to bring about change, to have leaders that reflect our values. And so I do believe that this is happening right now. And also I mentioned the potential of solar in a country like Australia is enormous. And so, again, I can kind of fluctuate between moments of um, optimism uh, and, and certainly moments of pessimism. But isn't that true of life? So I think it's, it's probably wise to hear from the psychologist on this one. Well, indeed. And I know you told my producer that some of the things you do in, in those moments of despondency are, you know, step in front of beauty, hang out with your husband, people you love, remember the good mm. things and connect with nature. So I'll definitely run that past our psychologist in a moment. But mm. we've been speaking with Dr. Joelle Gerges, who's an award-winning climate scientist and writer from the ANU, based in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes. And very keen to hear your thoughts too on how you approach climate anxiety or climate apathy or despair, the feelings that might come up for you around the situation uh, with our uh, level of action on climate change. What do you do? What do you, uh, what action do you take to try and um, deal with the emotions, however, whatever form they take when you see those news stories on TV or on the radio? 0418-226-576 is our text message number. Carol Ride is a psychologist and founder of Psychology for a Safe Climate, which offers psychological support to individuals and groups who are distressed by the climate emergency. Carol, great to have you with us in the studio. Thanks, Hilary. Now, uh, you founded this practice in 2010 after being a practising psychologist for over 30 years. What was the catalyst for that? What need did you see? Well, I saw the need to try and understand denial at the time our group started. We were trying to understand why so many people were not engaged with the um, climate science and willing to actually press for some changes. So we really researched denial and understood that um, it had very many faces um, and that really people were, um, in many cases, trying to protect themselves by denying the reality and um, joining with other people to sort of um, coalesce to say it wasn't, the climate science wasn't true. Well, and I know now you, you work with a lot of people who are deeply engaged, deeply kind of energised by this issue, but perhaps also at risk of burnout. How do you help them? Well, um, we do work with organisations who are working on climate change, um, climate scientists groups, researchers, policymakers, advocacy groups, and we really work on trying to help them come together to talk about their feelings around climate change. We run workshops to support them to do that. And we do part of that expression that, that occurs in the workshops is really often a great relief to people to find that they actually can talk about how they feel and they can be heard by others, their peers, and that giving expression is really a relief. So it's not just the talking it out themselves, it's linking with other people in similar situations. Yes, we, we link well in organisations, we'll link in small groups within the organisations, but we run something for the larger group, but we help people, um, we use often drawing materials to help people express their feelings and then talk in small groups about what they've drawn and what it's about for them. And that's usually a great relief because often those who are working on climate change in some way are so busy on 
working on advocacy or solutions that they don't actually get time to stop and think about how's it affecting them. Well, is that important? I mean, some of us feel an urgency, like we should just skip to solutions too sweet. Why is it important to process our emotions on the way? Well, our emotions are really a guide to how much we love and care about whatever is going on. And if we feel some anxiety or distress about climate change, it's because we love those who are going to be impacted and we're really concerned about the future. So it's very much important to have that space to talk about what's going on within as well as what's going on without. without. Um, and then giving the people a chance to talk together um, gives them a chance also to think about what do they need to care for themselves because often those who are working so hard haven't got much space to think about how to care for themselves. So it's a window into what do they need for themselves to care, to slow down, to support each other in a group so that they actually don't risk burnout. We're getting a lot of texts coming in on our text line, Carol Ride, saying, you know, I am really worried, I am scared, I've, I do feel hopeless. You're working with people who are, I guess, up the other end of the apathy scale, but do you get a sense that people, uh, that more people are feeling that sense of hopelessness or despair or, or inability to engage these days? Certainly, especially young people. Um, but we really know that one of the key things that people need if they're feeling distressed about climate change is to be able to not not be isolated, to move out of the isolation and connect with others. And that's the challenge for many people because often they haven't got people in their lives or in their social group that that they can talk openly with. And so that's what we do. We do provide spaces through our Climate Cafe program for people to, um, to come along and have a space where they can talk about what they feel to be respected, to be heard, to know that they're not alone. And that's the most important thing to help people stay engaged. And I understand climate cafes run in various parts of the country, so you can look them up online. Carol, a lot of our listeners will say, look, it's it's really hard to work through these emotions when the crisis is always there and seems so intractable. And if we feel that our government isn't taking enough action, it can seem like a problem that's not just up to us as individuals to process, but it won't shift until those in power do more. What would you say to those people? Well, I'd say really stay in there and join with others because collectively we've got a lot of influence and the more people are isolated, the less likely they are to engage in the sort of um, push for action. So we really are trying to help people come together not not to pressure them to take action, but to help them reflect on what really matters to them. Um, when people have space to talk about their feelings and think what at this crisis that we've got around the climate change, what does it mean for them about what they want to engage in for the future, what really is important at this time. And I think if we give space to that, it does help people join together with others and take action that's needed. What about the strategies that Joelle uses, the connecting with nature, connecting with loved ones, stepping in front of beauty? I love that one. Is that effective? Absolutely. Look, being in nature is really very helpful to people. It calms, calms the nervous system, but it also helps us recognise what 
connection we have with nature and how important it is to look after it. And that can be very, very comforting. And it's a really essential part of people's um, engagement with the climate issue is to do something in nature, either join a group that's doing regeneration or just being in nature and being joining a community garden. Again, being with other people is really, really important. I love that it can be a community garden. It doesn't have to be a five-day bushwalk. It can mm. be little bits of fairly easily accessible nature. Mm. We're speaking with Carol Ride, who's uh, built a practice based on helping people deal with the emotions around climate change. And that's our focus on Life Matters today. We've been hearing from Dr. Joel Gerges too, who's an award-winning climate scientist and writer from ANU. Uh, Joel, we, we talked earlier about people having limited capacity to engage with media reporting on this and perhaps therefore missing out on critical information that might lead to more action. Could reporting be done differently to minimise the chance of that? Look, for sure. But I think something that Carol just said was really important. And I think once we make an emotional connection and really reflect on the things that really matter and understanding, I've been saying lately that climate change isn't just about the statistics and the numbers. It's about the people and the places we love. And when we make those connections, so for instance, if we we know that now the, um, the koala is an endangered species in New South Wales and faces extinction by, say, 2050, How do we actually feel about that as a society? And so it really comes down to the things that we value collectively as a society. So I think it's taking a step back to to make a connection that climate change isn't just a scientific issue. It's actually a, a cultural, a societal and a political issue. And so I think it's about thinking about how we reframe the reporting of science, I guess, in in the media, but also the way that we think about what it is to be alive at this moment when the planet is warming and we are living in a rapidly changing world. And so I think that there's sort of deeper things to to contemplate. Well, and Joelle, you wrote a recent article called A Climate Scientist's Take on Hope. Where does hope fit into this conversation? Where can we squeeze it in? Oh, look, I don't think we need to squeeze it. One thing I should have said is that the IPCC... Uh, IPCC's report basically says that how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. And so sometimes non-expert commentators will say that there's runaway climate change, there's nothing we can do, the apocalypse is upon us. It's simply not true. The situation is bad and it is escalating, but it is not too late to to reel things in and try and minimise the damage. And so where I find hope personally is realising that there is still... Firstly, this capacity to to try and stop things in terms of uh, reducing emissions. And as I mentioned, we we could do that effectively tomorrow. We could halve emissions by 2030 with existing technologies. And I think that's actually very hopeful. And also just thinking about the social movements that have happened in the past to bring about lasting change. And when I was writing my book, Humanities Moment, um, I was I I got to actually read some of that literature and realise that the social movement we need right now and that's actually happening right now is going to transform the world. And so the people alive today are going to be really uh, determining the future course of humanity. And so for me, that's a hopeful thing. Uh, It's also very daunting, but it's also exhilarating at the same time. So it is an amazing time to be alive, but I know it can feel alienating uh, sometimes when you carry this knowledge, but it, it's also, um, it is really possible. Humans are, are, are very capable of incredible things and we can choose how we individually show up and collectively 
you know, band together. That was something Carol said, which I think is really, really important, is connecting with other like-minded people that understand this so you don't feel so alienated and realise that there is a lot that we can do. And we saw that with the federal election, with the shift of the government. These social tipping points happen when individuals get together and say, enough is enough, we want change. Yep, indeed. And holding those uh, conflicting and competing emotions in our minds and hearts might be necessary as well. Joelle Gerges, uh, Carol Ride, thank you both so much for joining us on Life Matters today. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr Joel Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist and writer from ANU based at the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes. And Carol Wright is a psychologist and founder of Psychology for a Safe Climate. I'll leave you with this text. The best antidote to despair is action and increasingly political action is necessary as time runs short for affecting cultural change. So, for example, says this person, hang out at polling booths for candidates who have long since made their personal Uh, cultural change to stand for immediate and effective climate action or support those willing to engage in civil disobedience in this space and address whatever personal psychological barriers you have to these kinds of actions. That's an interesting and possibly confrontational view here on Life Matters on ABCRN. Age Discrimination Commissioner Kay Patterson is fired up about protecting older Australians from abuse. She's going to join us next to talk about one step in particular that she says is a no-brainer. You're on RN. Hi there, I'm Farzadraki, and if you like stories that break your heart... The car had been broken into, and everything was stolen, and my heart sank. Make you laugh till you cry. Roy's, like, got his Trump hat on. I just thought I was screwed. You need days like these. And my mum says, even if you work hard, life is unfair. One person, one story, about the day when everything changed. Days like these. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app. One in six older Australians have experienced elder abuse. That is a pretty shocking statistic to hear on Elder Abuse Awareness Day. And it's not always the physical abuse that you might imagine. It's often financial or legal exploitation, where family members misuse powers that the older person has granted them to act on their behalf. Good planning for how to manage our later life can head off some elder abuse, but it's not the whole solution. Age Discrimination Commissioner, the Honourable Dr Kate Patterson, very kindly offered to tell us more about this, and we very gladly took her up on that offer. Commissioner, welcome. Good morning, Hilary. Why are one in six older Australians the victim of elder abuse? What are the causes and why is it so common? I think there are a number of reasons, and it's increased. Numbers of calls to our national helpline have gone up and also to the state helplines have gone up. And there are a whole lot of factors that... Are compounding it. COVID actually meant that older people were more isolated. It meant that some families were breaking up and a son or daughter was moving back home and saying to mum, this house is too big, you need to move to a smaller one, I need money for another house. Sometimes people start off just by taking a bit of money out of mum's account to pay for petrol and things because they're doing, or they think they're doing more or they may be doing more than their brother or sister who lives interstate or who doesn't care as much about their parent. And then it escalates into taking a bit more money. So it can start very small or it can even lead, sadly, to total neglect. And we've had some cases of murder. Wow. And it sounds like it's not just about the opportunity or or some kind of need. It's about a particular attitude, perhaps, of entitlement or attitudes towards older people generally. Can you speak to that? Well, ageism is the least understood ism. We understand about sexism, we understand about racism, but most of us 
in our bones have some ageist views, you know, I'll, and joke about it sometimes and jokes that would not be accepted in any other area. You know, you look good for your age. Well, you know, we don't say to people you look good for being, you know, a woman or good for being, you know, a, an Indian or something. We just have these strange attitudes to older people. And so we have this view too, I think, that people are at the, near the end of their life. They don't need as much money. They're less important. I just think um, ageism is rife in our community and is the basis of a whole lot of things like elder abuse and discrimination in the workplace. So ageism is something we have to fight. Well, and the Age Discrimination Commission uh, argues that a lot of the legal and financial exploitation flies under the radar. Why is that happening? How is it so easy to miss? Well, I think we don't keep our eyes open to it. People feel embarrassed. They don't want to get involved in somebody else's business. Some next door neighbour might think, I think that son is being terrible to his mother. I hear him screaming at her all the time. Oh, I don't want to get involved. It's a bit like um, child abuse was and family abuse was. Child abuse 30 years ago, family abuse 20 years ago. We, It goes under the radar too because people think, what have I done that my son or my daughter's behaving like this towards me? They feel embarrassed. They feel shame. It's nothing to be shameful about. People ought to know that there's help available. Yes, indeed. Well, I do wonder too, are there some people who might not realise that they're uh, exploiting an older person, that they might feel that that's just a, a normal part of the way they take care of that person? I think people sometimes have expectations that, well, it doesn't matter, I'm going to inherit this money anyway, I'll just take a bit more, or my mother, you know, didn't treat me well, I'm I don't need to treat her very well. There are all sorts of reasons why somebody may treat someone in a, pr a way that's inappropriate, particularly a parent. But I think that shame is the thing that really hinders people from, from seeking help. And isolation, we know, is one of the major factors in elder abuse. So we need, as a community, keep our eyes open and know that we can actually tell someone, we can tell a, a, we can ring the helpline and say that we believe that somebody's being hurt or, or neglected and an older person has the right to ring and get help. There is help available. Tell us that helpline number, Kate. It's 1800 353 374. That's 1800 353 374. And I'll give that number again at the end. We're speaking with Age Discrimination Commissioner, the Honourable Dr Kay Patterson, about elder abuse, how to spot it, but more importantly, how to prevent it. Kay, how much can good planning help with preventing uh, the kinds of elder abuse that we're talking about today, those legal and, and financial exploitation issues? It's absolutely vital and people need to have their documents in place I'd say when I'm out and about that people from 18 on need to have their documents in place because you should decide who decides for you if something happens. It's it's not, God forbid, but when you're younger you may have an accident and um, not have uh, parents around and, and you need someone who can make decisions for you because you lose capacity. So it's so vital that everyone has their enduring documents, but particularly that older people have their wills, their powers of attorney and other documents about what they want to happen if they're ill and can't make decisions for themselves, their advanced care directives. They've got those in place. There's more chance that they will actually have their wishes adhered to. It's, and the people who have those responsibilities as attorneys, the people who have a power of attorney, and I, I, I can, I'm concerned when people say, I have power of attorney over my mother. It's you have power of attorney with your mother to make decisions with them and if they lose capacity, to make decisions in their best interests and knowing what they wanted to happen, where they wanted to live, who they wanted to visit. 
them, who they wanted not to visit them, all those sorts of things. So planning ahead's vital. We've launched today, the Australian Human Rights Commission, a multicultural education campaign to help the major language groups, non-English speaking language group groups, to think about planning ahead because we know from a small study we did that they know about wills, but they don't know about powers of attorney and other enduring documents. So it's it's important that families discuss these issues, that p people prepare those documents, that they think carefully about who they trust to make those decisions for them and to know, and this is the thing I find I go out and about talking to older people, they don't know they can revoke their power of attorney. If the person's not doing the right thing, they can actually change it and get someone who will make decisions for them on their behalf and heed their wishes and their will. Kay, you've talked about some of the documents that we should keep in mind. There's the will, there's the advanced care plan for what kind of medical treatment you might wish or not wish to receive later in life and the powers of attorney. And I can still remember how confronting I found it when my brother brought up her advanced care plan and, and powers of attorney. What are some ways that you can get those conversations started that are going to help ease, ease the discussions? I think you can start by saying, I've just done mine, even if you're a young person. Mum, how about doing yours? And as I said, everybody should have their documents in place. You never know, sadly, when the time might come when you lose capacity because of an accident or a stroke, and young people could have strokes too. So you can start the conversation by talking about the fact that you thought you should plan ahead, and Mum, why don't you think about it? It is difficult. It's difficult confronting the fact that we all all die, but it's important to know that, and some of us may lose capacity as we get older or because of an illness, and that we best way of looking after ourselves is to make those plans ahead and to start that conversation as a family. Well, and you talked about some of the issues around enduring powers of attorney that some people might not know they can be revoked, for example. How easy is it to to make them foolproof? Is our system working as well as it should to make sure that people's powers of attorney are respected? Well, the thing is, Hilary, that it's very difficult to educate people about powers of attorney because the rules differ from state to state and from territories. It's something that Six years ago today, the Australian Law Reform Commission put down a report that argued that we should have a harmonisation of powers of attorney across the country. It's something I've been arguing for in my seven years, and my term finishes in the end of July. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I've been arguing for for the past six years. And Anna Bly and I, Anna Bly from the Australian Banking Association, because the Banking Association is very much behind this because they see how much it will improve situation for older people and reduce the likelihood of elder abuse, that um, we can educate people if we've got the same power of attorney rules across Australia. And yet we seem to be dragging our heels, the attorney generals across Australia when we meet with them and Anna and I have tried to meet with them all and they change as elections change and things and they all say, yes, it's a good idea, but it's very, very slow and it's moving at a glacial pace and I really wish it'd speed up. Well, yes, indeed. So we want a, a register of all enduring powers of attorney uh, and, and a, a harmonisation of the laws and regulations. Are there precedents for that in other situations where it, it has happened? Well, I was in a situation where I made some changes through a private member's bill and there's money involved and they harmonised their laws across the states very quickly. Ah. Um, it can be done when they need to do it. And I'm just saying to any attorneys general listening or reading this in the clips, get on with it. Older people need your help. We need help 
to be able to educate people about how to rate their powers of attorney, how to keep them safe, how they can revoke them, and particularly for the non-English speaking community, who when we did a small study, we found that they knew about wills, but they knew nothing about enduring documents. That is a huge gap. When you look at the increasing diversity of the Australian population, that is a huge issue. Kay Patterson, if we suspect that elder abuse is happening, particularly financial or legal or any kind really, how can we report it? What can be done? Well, if it's very serious and person's life is at risk, for example, if they're um, neglected and, you know, we have had people suffering from malnutrition and neglect. I mean, that, that is the very end and the awful part of elder abuse. Uh, then, of course, the police or a police check or a, um, a, a welfare check is appropriate. That's if it's emergency, then triple uh, O is really the number to ring. And many of the states now, the police are trained to deal with elder abuse. If it's financial abuse and it can be mild or extreme, then to ring the 1800 353 374 number is important, where if they can't help you, they should be able to send you. That goes to the helpline of the state that, from which you're calling. So if you're sister's in another state and you and she, you, you give her that number and she's in Victoria and you're in New South Wales, That when they, if she rings that number, it will go to the Victorian helpline. And the thing is we've got to make sure that the states make sure those helplines are adequately um, serviced and that the people can actually redirect people if the helpline can't give them the service they need. There are, for example, mediation services. A lot of older people don't want to go to court. They say, I don't want this to be an issue. I don't want my person to be, my, um, the person abusing me, my son or my daughter or my niece to go to court. I want them to understand what's happened. I want recompense for the money I've lost and I, they need help for the way they've, you know, gambling or drinking habits or whatever has caused them to steal this money from me. They need sometimes family mediation and we know that family aid mediation with a legal service is often the best way to solve these things so that people can understand how upset their parents are, how it's wrong to mix money. The law, law says that if you've got a power of attorney, you shouldn't put your mother's money into your account. The banks tell me that happens very often. Yes. Yeah, it's been fascinating learning a bit more about this today with you, Dr Kay Patterson. Thank you so much for your time uh, and uh, I hope the Attorney-General's listen to you before your term winds up in July. Well, I'm not sure that'll happen, but you know what? I ha I'm not going away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for joining us on Life Matters, Kay. Thanks for your interest, Hilary, too. A pleasure. Dr Kay Patterson is Australia's Age Discrimination Commissioner. And that phone number, again, if you're worried and want to uh, talk about a potential elder abuse, 1800 353 374. 1800 353 374. At the other end of the age spectrum, a massive live social experiment. That is how some researchers are describing the effects of the pandemic restrictions on kids' development. We're going to zoom in on primary age children next. The brilliant minds from the Nation Building Authority are back. Our fridge has got an address book. It's got the lot. Has it got cold milk? Not yet. And there's a lot to unpack. Who's been asking? We have. What? Us. Who? Me. Why? I'm lost again. With Rob Sitch, Kitty Flanagan, Celia Pacuola and the whole office. This is in the cone of silence. Under your hat. It's already on the radio. All new Utopia. What have these clowns been doing? Building for the future. 8pm Wednesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the million-dollar question that researchers around the globe are hoping to answer. What will be the long-term impact of the pandemic on the COVID generation? 
that kids and teens whose formative years saw the peak of this outbreak. As part of our COVID Kids series on Life Matters, we recently explored how one to five-year-olds were affected. Today, we're looking at primary school children with paediatrician Professor Frank Oberclade. He's an internationally recognised researcher, author, lecturer and consultant and one of the leaders of Child Health Policy, Equity and Translation at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Frank, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you, Hilary. We'll hear soon to a teacher's perspective, someone who's trained up in mental health and wellbeing in schools to monitor problems like these. And I'd like to hear from you if you've seen changes in the children around you since the COVID restrictions came and went. What do you think would help to support them now and in the future? Frank, you've been researching the impact of COVID on the wellbeing of children across a range of ages. How do the impacts on the primary school cohort compare to what's happening for the, the younger kids? Well, it's been variable. Um, Older kids can usually uh, understand what's happening and sort of cope themselves. But we find that um, the COVID pandemic has amplified existing differences. So kids that were doing well at school, that are confident, that do well in social relationships, generally it didn't affect them so much. But children who are struggling academically or were having some difficulties with social relationships, it amplified those relationships as well. So there was a sort of differential response. Some kids did fine uh, with homeschooling, for example. Um, there was no social anxiety. They didn't need to go to school and, tr- and um, uh, negotiate other relationships. There were no distractions at home. Anecdotally, we learned of children who came off medications because they were concentrating really well. Um, For other children, they really struggled. Uh, They were in families that perhaps weren't as supportive. Uh, They didn't have good internet access. Uh, They lived in a cramped environment where often parents were working from home. And so for them, homeschooling was really difficult. So it it was sort of variable. But generally, school-age children uh, can understand what's happening. They can uh, uh, cope better. Younger preschool children, of course, are really dependent on their parents. And when we used to give talks during the COVID pandemic about uh, for parents about uh, how to help their kids, we always said to them, fit your own oxygen mask first, because children's anxiety or the way children coped often reflect how parents coped. As kids get older, they're more likely to be able to cope independently. Yeah, I sometimes felt like a mini-armed goddess just handing out oxygen masks left, right and centre during those times. We're speaking with Professor Frank Oberclade, who's an internationally recognised researcher, author, lecturer and paediatrician about the long-term impacts as far as we can judge what they might be on kids who have been going through primary school over the last few years. Frank, can we learn anything from previous epidemics? For example, the Spanish flu, do we have any data on long-term impacts on young children from things like that? No, I don't think we were set up to do good longitudinal studies in those days. I think in those days, it was um, medicine generally was trying to prevent children and people from dying. And we we didn't study social issues the way we do now. So uh, to the best of my knowledge, we have very little learning from those years. Uh, There's now a number of international studies, not just during the acute phase, looking at the way children cope, the way parents cope, the effect on society and so on, but uh, several longitudinal studies. Uh, As you said in in your introduction, this is a natural experiment because we just don't know what happens long term. We do know that for a number of children, they continue to struggle at school. So the Victorian government, for example, hired thousands of um, retired teachers to uh, come into schools and give these kids tutorials in an attempt to catch up. 
We also know that younger children, three, four-year-olds, missed out on preschool. They didn't go to kindergarten. And uh, that's so important to build the foundations for later literacy. So there are a whole lot of unknowns. And uh, I think over time, we'll understand better the effects of the pandemic on kids' uh, academic achievement, their social relationships, their self-esteem, their mental health. Some people might think, look, kids don't remember that much from when they're young. Is it about how much they remember or other factors that, that affect how they're going to come out of this? Well, it's not just memory. There are other factors as well. I think we understand from research on brain development that the external environment has such an impact on the developing brain. Uh, it's, it's like building the, building a house. You know, the foundations in those early years are just so important. So if children don't have exposure to uh, play, to social relationships, to uh, learning, uh, that, that potentially they do suffer. So it's not just memory. I think there are longer term, there are no, there's no doubt there's longer term consequences of difficult environmental events in those early years. I think a lot of parents will be listening to you, Frank Oberclade, and saying, surely brain plasticity is going to be our friend here. What, what can we do to help children heal from this time if they have taken a hit to their development? Uh, just the, the, what they need to do is what all good parents should do, what all parents um, would like to see them doing, create a warm, stimulating, consistent environment for their children, respond to issues, surround them with uh, activities that um, enhance their curiosity, make sure they have opportunities for so social relationships, talk to them if kids are f feeling anxious or um, there's a, a change in behaviour, uh, start a conversation with them. And uh, if parents really think that there are longer lasting issues, if kids are anxious, if they feel cut off, if they spend more time in their room, if they've lost that spark, get help sooner rather than later. Professor Frank Oberclade, you've been developing a new model of mental health deliveries for schools in Victoria. What have you been training teachers up to look for? Um, we've, we've, the aim of the, uh, it's, we've called the, the Mental Health in Primary Schools program or MIPS, and it's really to build capacity in schools. So schools are an ideal platform to engage children in mental health issues because uh, uh, trained teachers observe these children in the classroom six hours a day, five days a week. Uh, they see the way they interact with peers. They see the way they cope uh, with academic tasks. They see them on the playground. So they're in an ideal position to d detect problems very early on. So we we had a partnership. We have a partnership with Melbourne Graduate School of Education. We train an experienced teacher to go into schools in a new role, a non-teaching role, to be a mental health and wellbeing coordinator. So that it's not a clinical role. Uh, it's not designed to provide counselling for individual children, but they work with classroom teachers. They provide professional development for them so they can recognise early signs of problems. They develop a whole school approach to resilience. And importantly, they act as a liaison between the school and community for those kids that need further assessment. Uh, and it's not a program. It's designed to increase teacher competence and confidence. Uh, and so far, it's been a great success. We started off with 10 schools to do feasibility, uh, then 26, then 100. And the evaluation data show that well over 90% of teachers feel more confident, more competent in recognising problems early, in addressing those problems. So uh, the Victorian government uh, last year um, 
uh, announced $200 million to expand this to every primary school in Victoria. Once the teachers have identified the problems, are there enough support services to deal with them? Well, often there are. What we're trying to do is to de-expert the experts. So teachers know these kids better than anybody. And what we've found is that if we give teachers the space and the confidence and, and some training, they deal with many of these problems. So they detect problems when kids first start to struggle. And the idea is to build support and scaffolding around these children. And sometimes it's just modifying the classroom. Sometimes it's having a chat to parents. Sometimes it's changing relationships in the playground. But for many of these problems, if we can get to them very early, teachers know what to do. Teachers are well-trained. They know these children. They often know their families well. So they're in an ideal situation to nip problems in the bud and stop them from becoming more serious. Rosie Parry is one of those teachers who's now also a mental health and wellbeing leader, thanks to this new strategy being rolled out in Victorian schools that you've been hearing Professor Frank Oberclade talk about from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Rosie Parry, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really great to chat to someone on the ground. Have you noticed a difference in the kids' behaviour since COVID started? Uh, definitely. There's definitely lots of what Frank was talking about, which is around the social and emotional development of children because of that lack of face-to-face of working through conflicts as they arise or challenges when you're dealing with peer relationships on a day-to-day basis. That's just been removed for such an extended period that I think it's had huge, it made a huge impact on children's development. And you've been trained up for this new model of mental health uh, delivery and just to, to be more able to spot when problems are emerging. What are the, some of the things that that training made you more aware of, Rosie? Uh, so the training, so I, st- I studied wellbeing as well at University of Melbourne. And then the training, the, the great thing about the training is it's ongoing. So it's throughout the time that you're working in the schools. So you'll learn something and then you'll be able to put it into practice. And one of the things that we've been doing is sort of doing a social and emotional, uh, uh, I guess, audit of the school and looking at what's actually already in place and then working out what the school needs. And all schools are different. So looking at different contexts and, and understanding that one fit doesn't fit all, one model doesn't fit all schools. Well, yeah, I mean... So that's been a good thing to learn. You work at a school in Western Victoria in regional Australia. Do you feel yeah. that there's a, a differential level of support available for kids inside and outside cities? Definitely. I worked in the inner city before I got the job regionally and I can see that there are very different accesses for children regionally and, it's, and it is harder, definitely a lot harder to get supports out there. And well, it's luckily changing because of COVID as well. COVID has been an issue for accessing services but it's also over time as we all know with telehealth it has improved things as well for regional people so it's got both sides to it. Mm, yeah we're getting a lot of texts on that you know there were some great things about lockdowns increased connection with close relationships my child calmed down a lot that kind of thing. Rosie yeah. since you became a mental health and wellbeing leader are you seeing any changes or signs of improvement in the kids I guess over the last you know year or so when the restrictions eased? Yeah I think I've seen some great outcomes in the upper years. I work a lot with the older children and developing their social and emotional literacy. And I'm seeing that they're really engaging in help-seeking behaviours early now and they're really seeking out those um, extra help with relationship issues with their peers and also 
the encouraging encouraging children to talk to their teachers, which has been a bit of a barrier for for children in general, and they explain that to be that they don't want their teachers knowing all of their problems, which has been interesting to learn and yeah. to educate teachers about too. Yes, well, I'm encouraged to hear that there's increased help seeking. That's one of the first steps. Rosie, thanks so much for uh, giving us your insight today on Life Matters. No worries. Rosie Parry there, who's a teacher who's now also been trained up as a mental health and wellbeing leader. Part of a strategy that Professor Frank Oberclate has been developing. Frank, just finally, is this kind of program necessary in other parts of Australia too, or only when there was a, a crisis on the scale of the Victorian lockdowns? No, this is not. We started this before COVID because um, we used to say that child mental health was the elephant in the room because we it, we had such difficulty getting it on um, politicians' radar screens. And I think there's now an understanding that uh, more than half of adult mental health problems start in those early years, and that we shouldn't be waiting until these kids' problems become so severe that they need to see a pediatrician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, that child mental health provides so many opportunities for prevention and early intervention. And as I mentioned before, schools are an ideal place. So we began this well before COVID. And uh, uh, and I think, yes, I think that uh, every school ideally uh, should have something like this, somebody whose responsibility it is, uh, as Rosie said, to build a whole of school approach to work with teachers, to encourage children to talk about their issues earlier, to work with parents. So it's not unique to Victoria and it's certainly not unique to COVID. Um, the question is, how do we create opportunities to prevent these problems, to build resilience, but particularly to notice very early on when children are starting to struggle and intervene then rather than waiting for problems to become so severe that they need to see a, a professional. That is the million-dollar question. Professor Frank Oberclade, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on Life Matters. Thanks, Hillary. It's a pleasure. Professor Frank Oberclade from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Boy, what a lot of texts on all our stories today. One says on, on this issue, I'm a qualified literacy intervention teacher. Teachers do not know indicators of learning difficulties or how to cater for them. Very angry about lack of support for these kids. And on the pandemic, one person says, homeschooling highlighted how much my one year, year one child didn't know. I tried to play catch up but ended up having to repeat year one for her. Luckily, she was young enough. On elder abuse, one new perspective I think is worth adding to the mix. What if you're hearing from the what if what you're hearing from the neighbours, loud voices or not nice comments, is actually a carer who isn't coping, looking after a beloved elder who can't hear well or has unfortunately developed frustrating behaviours or is changing in ways that cause grief and confusion in the carer. Things aren't always what they seem. Maybe ask about the carer and how they're coping. And on how you deal with climate-related uh, emotions, after the Black Summer fires, says one text, I started a women's group which has grown to be a national organisation, the Women's Climate Congress, with members all over the country. We advocate for women's leadership and collaborative non-partisan action on climate change, for immediate and urgent action now, and longer-term human and planetary wellbeing. Through conversations with hundreds of women and a national congress of women, we've created a charter for change, and we're running workshops with women around the country to develop actions in the Charter. Women's Climate Congress, you can find them online. On our next show, things are getting a little spicy. 
Beverly Wang is asking how you've been able to improve the sexual relationship you have with yourself. How do we flex our inner sex appeal beyond our relationships with others? And can doing that improve our well-being? Is feeling sexual a useful and important part of being a human, whether or not you've got a partner? Get into it on Life Matters with Beverly next time, and I'll catch you next week. I'm Hilary Harper on RN. Listener.